Okay, welcome to CineLit. And today we are spinning off from our Kathleen Turner podcast. Inspired by the talking about her career, we uh, briefly mentioned A Man With Two Brains in that podcast. And that got us thinking about Steve Martin, and particularly Steve Martin and his collaborations with Carl Reiner. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. I am Adam Marsh, your host, and I am joined as ever by our CineLit expert, Daryl Puxton. How are you, Daryl? I'm fine, Adam. Hello. Hello, everyone. Cool. So, yeah, so Steve, let's, let's get into it. Steve Martin, one of my all-time favourites, um, particularly of comedy actors. I you know, I grew up watching Planes, Trains and Automobiles. I remember being way too young to see that movie, considering how many swear words were in it. But I thoroughly th- laughed so hard at that. You know, those aren't pillows, things like that. You know, just just priceless, priceless, me- precious childhood memories of watching Steve Martin. And equally, as he's gone forward in his career, um, even what is considered some of his horrible movies, I've been watching with my kid and enjoying those. So, um, yeah, he's, he's come full circle for me. Um, but I'm delighted to be talking about these, these first four movies, Daryl. They're very uh, interesting movies. Sure. I mean, my personal take on it all is my comedy era is is the 1930s. I don't think there's anything better than the classic W.C. Fields, Laurel and Hardy, Marx Brothers. These four films are my favourites other than 1930s comedies. I think these four are the funniest four films that I've ever seen outside of that classic decade. Oh, okay. This is bizarre because I actually suggested this podcast. It's such a bizarre coincidence that maybe I I subconsciously know you quite well. Yeah, yeah. but we, yeah, so so let's let's get let's get into the chronological order. We were looking at the Jerk, nineteen seventy nine. We're looking at Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, nineteen eighty two. We're looking at The Man with Two Brains from nineteen eighty three. Three, yes. And All of Me from nineteen eighty four. So four films in relatively quick succession that I, I guess in uh, particularly in America tracked Steve Martin from being that stand up comedian occasional host of Saturday Night Live, HBO comedy specials kind of guy, to a Hollywood, Hollywood leading man, particularly in comedies and, and, and later, lastly, family movies. Uh, I, I think he and Carl Reiner were both on a real high at the end of the 70s because Reiner had been around for years and they, they 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 sort of came up in similar fashion. Reiner was part of that whole Sid Caesar, Mel Brooks thing, the, the big American TV comedy sketch shows of, of the 50s, you know, uh, at the birth of TV. And Martin sort of did much the same, like 15 or 20 years later. He'd been writing for the Smothers Brothers and various other sketch shows, occasionally got him front of the cameras then as you say hosted Saturday Night Live on and off and did um, occasional sketches on there became a big name through that and then basically sort of uh, revolutionized um, stand-up comedy and became almost as big as like the Rolling Stones or Led Zeppelin or someone you know he was was playing stadiums Uh, he was he was one of the first performers to do that and Reiner had, had sort of come out of writing for television into making movies from the mid-60s onwards. And he made great films like Where's Popper in 1970 with uh, George Siegel, which is fantastic, great black comedy. And he'd had, he'd had a big surprise hit with Oh God in 1978, I think, the George Burns movie. Then being in the position where he could sort of write his own ticket in Hollywood, he then made a film with Henry Winkler, which uh, was was an attempt to, to get Winkler from, from TV onto the big screen and it didn't quite work, you know. They, they should have just gone with the Fonz, the movie, I think. But then Steve Martin was hitting really, really big and, of course, he'd got ambitions and he wanted to get into movies. And um, he formed a company called Aspen Pictures that was like an offshoot of Universal. And Universal gave him half a million dollars and said, okay, let's let's see what you can do. Invest that and see what you can do. And Martin actually sought out Carl Reiner to make films with. So he he'd grown up as a fan, I think. And um, and it was, yeah, he's the guy I want to work with. You can see, you can see why why they would be attracted to each other, I guess. They both make very silly comedies. Yeah. That 
actually, when you look at them, are way more intelligent than they probably need to be. You know, they, they, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a streak of uh, there's a streak of cleverness that runs through these movies that not, not many comedians would allow in them in their comedy movies, but but Martin does, and Martin's always been that. He's been deceptively, I mean. Obviously, he was massive success in stadiums, and that's because some of his humour is quite broad and, and physical, and you know, uh, wacky. You know, wild and crazy guy, as his catchphrase was around that period. Yeah. But there is some very specific comedy nuances in his in his routines that a lot of other comedians would leave out. But he probably sees that as the most important bit of his silly bit about balloon animals you know it's um it's it's the cleverness that he that they bring towards to the material that he sees as essential i think yeah i think there are elements of that in the films as well Mm. and we'll go on to to talk about that i'm sure as we go and and martin took this getting into the movies business seriously because he 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 could have easily just carried on making millions and millions by playing the hollywood bowl or whatever you know every every couple of months but he actually retired from comedy for 35 years in 1981. And he only, he only came back and did a bit of stand-up in 2016. So, uh, uh, and again, that was just, I, I think that was a, just a sort of one-off charity performance or something. So uh, he was so committed to re-proving himself all over again as, as, a, as a movie star that he, he he gave up what what was his his day job or his evening job I guess you know that was making him millions and millions of dollars and he took a risk and, and was so serious about it that he quit stand up. Mm. Well, uh, yeah, I think it, I think it shows that kind of that kind of commitment to to becoming a movie star. Uh, obviously, he he would look at other comedians that have been around the stand up comedy in the seventies and see them hitting peaks and then. You know, it's a fickle, it's a fickle industry. Stand-up comedy. You know, it crashes and burns fairly quick, and the next big thing comes along. So he's obviously thinking, well, you know, I need to move into movies. Everyone wants to move into movies, I guess. And Steve Martin took it bloody seriously. You know, he, yeah. he, he sat down, wrote a, a feature film, that jerk, which basically was kind of like a everything that you know about Steve Martin that you think is funny about Steve Martin from his stand-up routines, from his comedy routines on Saturday Night Live, from his HBO specials, we'll put them all into a movie and string it together. So there's something for every fan out there and hopefully it'll expose him to a wider audience. It's, it's almost cynical yeah, in, its, yeah. in its construction, I think. Yeah. Now on a couple of previous podcasts, when we talked about comedy films and, uh, and about sort of whimsical and lightweight films, uh, we've mentioned things like Forrest Gump in the past and one or two others. And we've, we've referenced the Voltaire's Candide, as as being a, a a template that has been used in in modern film, you know this idea of of, of this sort of innocent character who sort of wanders around through the world and meets different people and gets into different situations, and we we the the reader or the viewer see a sort of life experience out of that, and a, and it's an experience we can perhaps identify with little bits of, and that's exactly what the jerk is, you know. Steve used that precise template there again and had this sort of drifting character and um there are there are actual specific elements taken from his his stand-up show or stuff that he'd done in sketches and so on right from the very start the 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 opening line of of the jerk things haven't been easy for me uh i was born a poor black child that comes right out of his stage routine yeah yeah so you can imagine him writing his script thinking right i'm i'm going to become a star i'm going to become a movie star putting that down as the first line as a sort of reference and then right what's what's line two you know and going from there so uh, and and what what line two was and what line three was and the rest turned out to be the jerk and and it's it's fantastic what a what a great uh, what a great feature debut yeah absolutely but it, it it definitely is a sort of like linking narrative that strings together a series of sketches effectively it's not quite it's, it's a much more successful sketch movie than others and it does have a central plot, but 
you could easily see this being one of his HBO specials where this is the bit where Steve Martin um, is attacked by a, a, a an assassin who picks on random people out of the phone book. You know, you could see him turning up, oh, this is a bit where we bring in Milton Berle and we have Milton Berle in here and we do a little comedy sketch with him. And it strings them together as a life expectancy. Instead of playing different characters, it's yeah, yeah. Navin Johnson who's doing all these different characters and these different sure. sketches. He even does actual routines that he'd done on stage. Mm. Like there's a whole bit at the end of the film where he's he's on the skids at this point because what we've got here in general is it, it's a rags to riches and back to rags story, isn't it, basically? Yeah. But with a happy ending, you know. And there's a scene towards the end where his life's ruined and it's almost, you're almost in sort of Citizen Kane or Howard Hughes sort of territory at this point. The characters become a, a, a multi-millionaire and, um, and suddenly... The, the rug is pulled out from underneath him and he, he loses everything. And he's sort of stumbling through the house, telling his wife that, uh, oh, I, I don't need anything. You know, I can live without anything. And then he's, he, he sort of spots items around the house and says, oh, I need that chair. And he grabs it and I need this and I need that. And he ends up carrying all this junk out of the house, sort of trailing it behind him. And that's straight out of the stage routine that he'd done. So, uh, so it was great that he could sort of incorporate that stuff, but it's, it's it's clever writing to actually manage to incorporate that existing material into a narrative without it looking sketchy and without it stopping the flow of the thing. And I think the reason for that is is it is based on a tried and tested template, partly partly on Candide and partly on your, your classic rags to riches, rise and fall story. Yeah, and, and maybe that's what Carl Reiner brought to the table because this was written by Steve Martin. It stars Steve Martin. Carl Reiner comes in to direct, so maybe this is maybe this is the input that Carl Reiner has on the movie. He, he, yeah. he manages to bring an overall form to it that maybe wasn't there initially, and maybe it was it was a string of sketches like we see many other comedians do movies like that where it's like, oh, and this is the bit where I do my routine. This is the bit where I do that sketch from Saturday Night Live that everyone loved. He smooths around the edges and makes it flow into one narrative. Yeah, because Reiner, as we said, had started out in sketch comedy himself and he'd gradually developed into writing films and directing films. So, yeah, he, he knew the score in that sense. He knew exactly how to take a comedy sketch or a series of routines and manoeuvre it into a, a continuing narrative and uh, what a narrative it is it's it's, it's great you know we've, we've got um the whole central section of the of the film is a sort of circus or fairground type uh, movie we've we've got this great sort of uh, as i say sort of howard hughes or citizen kane type stuff in there the very start of the film we've got all the sort of black sharecropper you know on on the on the the sort of rundown ramshackle farm sort of thing and it all it all seems seamless as you watch it I, I think it's it's so well constructed and I think as as we've said the fact that Steve actually sought out Carl Reiner as a director Reiner was on was on a high at the time as we've said with having having done the film with George Burns but um he, he he wasn't he wasn't a sort of young comedy gunslinger. It wasn't or or he 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 wasn't one of the movie brats or anything. The sort of people you might have thought that that Steve would would, would seek out to work with. He he went to the to the previous generation or even the one before. You know, you know, Reiner's like the next best thing to Mel Brooks there. So uh, mm -hmm. you know, if you can't get Mel, you get Carl sort of thing. So yeah, I'm sure you're right in 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 that. Reiner must have had a lot of input into this and that Steve Martin was prepared to bow down to him and not come on as the big I am, you know, not say, look, I've played Hollywood Bowl, what have you done, you know, but to say, I respect you, I, I want to work with you because I respect the work that you did before I, I came on TV. I grew up yeah. watching you and Mel Brooks and Sid Caesar and I put myself in your hands. There is a sense of that, I think, with the jury. Looking at the coming of that period, who I mean, who was Steve Martin's contemporaries in that period? Who was who were the young comedy gunslingers like you just said? Who would direct this? Because you think about the movie brats, and none of them did comedy very well. No, I mean, when when Spielberg attempted it, and, and he and he got some of the Saturday Night Live people involved in in nineteen forty one, you know, it was 
not one of his greatest uh, triumphs, was it? I think you're you being know? kind there, Daryl. I think <laughs> it's widely regarded as one of the worst movies ever made. So, you know, it's yeah, like, yeah. it's one of those things. But, yeah. like, who, so who who would they be looking at? I guess yeah. Hal Ashby did very specific kind of black, black comedy. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. Which I, I can see Martin might have been a fit yeah. with Hal Ashby, mm. actually. You can sort of see that. But um, but I, I, I think, um, I mean, a lot of people making comedy in the 70s were sort of, uh, you'd got people like Woody Allen. They were making films starring themselves. You know, they, they weren't sort of directors for hire. They weren't the sort of people that a Steve Martin could go along to and say, look, I want to work with you. I think that might be another reason why he had to go a generation back and seek out somebody from the Mel Brooks. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, look, looking looking at it, yeah, I can't see who else he would have gone to in that period. You know, uh, he uh, is obviously a comedian who who does look backwards anyway in his in, in his style of comedy that he did, even though it was contemporary to late seventies. He was definitely looking back to like you said, like that the nineteen thirties comedians and things like that. So yeah, yeah. The, the other thing I love about The Jerk is the um, the way in which Martin, again, could could have dominated the film and could have, could have really called the shots and said, look, I want this to be all about me, you know, this is all about my ego sort of thing. The number of supporting characters in there who are absolutely excellent and who are given space by the star to do their stuff, as well as insisting on Carl Reiner being the director, he wrote the female lead for Bernadette Peters, who, who was, was then able to do it. I think one thing about all of these four films is you've got Steve Martin up against a fairly big name uh, female co-star. And it's interesting, yeah, to, to see how he sort of responds to that and how he acts against them, you know. And again, I think the one constant there is he always gives them a lot of leeway and he allows them to do their stuff and they're as much the star of the film as he is. But as, as I say, we'll, we'll go on to talk about that film by film. But I'm, I'm sure we do agree on, you've already mentioned him in passing, um, M, Emmett Walsh. Oh my goodness. When, when are we doing a podcast all about him? Oh, just this role, just this role. This, if you haven't seen the film, he plays a, a random lone gunman who kills random people out of the phone book. Plays beautifully into the the the, the Navin Johnson storyline yeah. because he he gets his first job, and he's such a naive sort of simple character that he gets all excited. His name's appearing in print when when the new phone books delivered. Just to interrupt you there, Dara, just for younger readers, a phone book was something that used to get delivered to your house, which had numbers in that of all the people living in the city. So uh, just yeah, now it's just you know, mobiles. It's fine. Yeah, you're on, <laughs> on your own phone now yeah. with with your mates. You know, but imagine if you've got twenty thousand mates though, and they were all on your phone. You know, and imagine that in a in a printed book. You know, we get this. He gets the phone book delivered. Of course, we then cut to M.M. Walsh as this random sniper or has also received his new phone book and plants his finger at random on the first page that he opens. And you, you can guess the rest, you know. Yeah. But, but what, what a performance, what a performance. And then he comes back into the film later on and is, and is equally brilliant in his scene later in the film. Yeah, yeah, he comes back. Playing a different that. version of the same character. But uh, um, no, M. Emmett Walsh is, is fabulous. Uh, I'm, I'm sure listeners will know him from uh, the Coen Brothers' Blood Simple, which is a film that he absolutely steals. And he sort of goes some way to stealing this, I think. Definitely, definitely. He's uh, he's just just, just a mumbling, the, the mumbling, like, lousy, no-name, run-of-the-mill scumbag. <laughs> it's just like, it just, oh, I mean, bits every time I watch that movie, particularly those scenes. Um, one thing that really that surprised me as I was, I was re-watching this and re-researching it again was it's got a sequel. The Jerk 2, as in, as well. Yeah. Um, I, I've never seen it, never heard of it. Have you seen it, Errol? I haven't, no. I was aware of it, but I've never seen it. And I, I remember it getting absolutely appalling reviews when it came out. It's nothing to do with Steve Martin and apparently is terrible. So uh, that's all we need yeah. to say about it. Yeah, it does seem to have disappeared without a trace, doesn't it? So, uh, yeah. So, but, but, but just suffice to say, the impact that this movie did have in America, if not worldwide was enough to actually do a sequel to it a few years yeah, later. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, it was a smash there. I'm sure it stole, it sold on Steve Martin's name because everyone who who bought a ticket to see him live would have bought a ticket for the movie as well, you know. And, and he got his Saturday Night Live cachet as well. And uh, so, yeah, it, it was a, almost a sort of built-in success. Really, it was it was going to be a hit. Over here in the UK, we we didn't really know what Saturday Night Live was at that time. This is 1979, 1980. We sort of had to go out to the movies to discover Bill Murray and discover Richard Pryor. And that gradually happened as the 80s wore on. So the films we're talking about here, none of these films were hits in Britain. In fact, the two later ones that we're going to talk about, Man With Two Brains and All Of Me, didn't really get much distribution in Britain. Nobody knew who Steve Martin was, and, and and that was that. He didn't really hit big until later on with stuff like Roxanne and, and Trains, Planes and Automobiles. But, uh, but yeah, the films with Carl Reiner have caught on outside America, I think, over over the years, over time. But, yeah, we, we should emphasise that they weren't hits in Britain, and, and we didn't really know who who this guy was, even though he was a sensation in the States. So we got um, Steve Martin... Doing the jerk, crazy, wacky comedy, shock of white hair, very distinctive looking. How do you follow that up, Daryl? <laughs> How do you follow up a crazy, wacky comedy like that with a shock of white hair? You go back to the 1940s. You go black and white, dyed black hair, film noir pastiche. <laughs> um, it's an interesting follow up. Yeah, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. Absolutely, I absolutely adore this movie. It, it's so good. And again, it's Carl Reiner in there. This is three years after The Jerk. So, you know, Martin wasn't an instant hit in Hollywood, even though The Jerk did very well. You know, it took three years then before they got this next movie out. I think he'd, he'd done a couple of minor films in between. He did the Pennies from Heaven film version, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Where he learned to dance and... But yeah, the, the the dream team with Reiner was 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 back by '82, and the the genesis of this was they 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 were sat together with the, I think it was George George Guy the the writer I think was was had a meeting with them, and they were batting ideas back and forward about doing a new comedy film together. And Martin said, "Hey, there's a scene here where we could use like an old an old movie clip, and I could interact against it," and the light bulb went off in Reiner's head. And he he just said, "That's it. You know, we'll do we'll do the whole movie like that." Yeah, and it, and it's brilliant. You know, it's it's, it's great. I mean, the two classic names to mention in the credits are uh, Miklos Rocher, who who did the music, and uh, Edith Head, who did the costumes. And it was yeah. the last film, I think, for both of those. And I'm sure that if if you've watched more than a dozen movies, you'll you'll probably have encountered the names Edith Head and Miklos Rocher here and there because they they were costume designer and composer respectively on well a lot of the films that are excerpted in Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid for one thing you know uh, they go they both go way back to the 30s 40s to golden age Hollywood and they're both still around in the early 80s and they're both working on this film and that's a sign that Reiner and Martin wanted to get this right that not only had, had Steve Martin gone back to the 50s to hire Carl Reiner as his partner in comedy but they were now going right back to the source. They were saying, look, if we're going to make a 40s film noir, let's get the people who actually worked on those pictures. And so you've got the real Edith Head, you've got the real Miklos Rocher, and then you've got the on-screen clips of Alan Ladd, Veronica Lake, Ava Gardner, Humphrey Bogart, Burt Lancaster, Kirk Douglas... They're all there. Lana Turner, they're all in there. And Steve Martin's acting against them. And how good is the editing and the, the, the set design, the lighting, the use of camera angles? It's all perfect. Yeah. I think what, what, what they do really well is that they play the comedy deadpan. They play it straight. They play it as if this is a film noir. This is a this is a, a drama, and this is this is what we we we're involved in. They don't play it with a wink to the camera. Look, we're interacting with Bogart. Oh yeah, they play it dead straight, and that helps with the smoothing out of the uh, the routines. And a lot of the comedy is like it's not laugh out loud, chuckle, you know, like rolling over in the aisles. It's like 
witty, funny, sort of like, oh, I can see where this is going, you know, the, the way that they're pitching the the lines and, 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 and getting the characters to interact with them, you know, like the wear, for God's sake, wear a tie, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. things like that, he turns up with a tie, what have I told you, I don't like you, you know, all those kind of, like, in the interactions, between, particularly between Bogart and... Um, Bogart and Steve Martin, oh, you yeah, genuinely Bo- feel that there's a character that Bogart's playing. Bogey becomes a foil for Steve Martin, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's he's fabulous. It's really, really good selection of clips because what they do there, they don't go for the obvious Bogey clips either. They've gone for ones from well-known films like In a Lonely Place and Dark Passage, but it, it ain't the Maltese Falcon, you know, it's not, it's not to have and have not, you know, it's the bogey that audiences might not necessarily have seen quite so much, but it works for the film and it works for that interplay that they want to get. Um, yeah, the, the the plot of the film is a damn good, it's a film good serious film noir. <laughs> yeah, it is, yeah. it's a film noir plot, yeah. And as you say, I, I think that really works for the film because it gives them something to bounce off, you know. And we've been talking about the female co-stars in Martin's films and how they're a feature of these Carl Reiner movies. We've got Rachel Ward here, who's um, in, in some variable stuff at the time. She'd done a horror movie called Terror Eyes, which was pretty dreadful. She wasn't always consistent, but uh, she's great in this. Yeah, she inhabits that sort of like 1940s, is she a femme fatale, is she not a femme fatale yeah. kind yeah. of film noir character. She looks great in the 40s outfits and, and she really gets the attitude. You know, and she's, she comes equipped with the husky voice and everything. So, yeah, and it's funny we're talking about that because it's like literally, we, we, you know, we're going to get on to Kathleen Turner and the man with two brains in the moment. But you seem like maybe maybe she's miscast. She should have been in this one, maybe, playing that maybe. film noir character with her, you know, body heat and, uh, yeah, and that husky yeah. voice fits perfectly. I'm kind of glad the way it worked out because I, th- I think Rachel Ward is the next best thing. And then, and then, if we'd had Kathleen in this, we wouldn't have wouldn't have had her in the Man with Two Brains, and that's not a world I want to live in. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. Now, interesting, you mentioned Kathleen because, of course, we talked about body heat in depth on a previous podcast, and noir was right back in vogue in in early eighties Hollywood because we we'd had um, we'd had body heat, which was a great sort of it, it was called a neo noir, but it was it was really a remake of Double Indemnity, wasn't it? You know, and we we we'd had the remake of Postman Always Rings Twice. A couple of years later, there was uh, Coppola and Vin Vendors did uh, Hammett, didn't they? So, so noir, noir was very, Blade very Runner much as well. Blade Runner, of course, has has that whole thing. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, bring bringing that into the future in in opposition to Steve Martin and Carl Reiner actually travelling back to the past. You know, so yeah, it was sort of in vogue at the time, and I think that was that must have helped Martin and Reiner because this can't have been an easy pitch to the studio. No, I mean, because they got nineteen films that they were splicing into this film. And only six of them were owned by Universal at that time. So Universal had to, like, licence 13 other films. Yeah, right, other studios. right as hell, yeah. Yeah, but equally, just dealing with other studios. <laughs> it's just like, no, it wasn't really done that often that time, you know. Um, it, it, it must have been a hard sell, but I think it, it's, really, it's really well done, really well done. And like I say, it's not really that sort of, like, crazy, wacky comedy that Steve Martin was known for there's this bits of that don't get me wrong there's this bits of the silly the silly comedy but not as much as you would have expected had you having watched the jerk and his uh stand-up specials and things like that i think what what's really good about dead men don't wear plaid is that um it appealed i think to steve martin's audience but i think a slightly older audience who'd maybe grown up watching film noir on TV or might have even been old enough to go and see the films at the cinema because this was only sort of 35, 30 years after the heyday of noir. So you'd have had, you'd have had a lot of people in the audience who were familiar with these films and potentially might be put off by the fact that someone had done what, what, they, what they might feel was a spoof of, of these, you know, to go in and say, oh, they're going um, to sort of destroy the whole sort of feel of noir and they're going to make fun of Bogey and Kirk Douglas and so on. But I think you get in and you watch the film and the script is tossing out character names like Walter Neff and Cody Jarrett and Kitty Collins. And, uh, and I, I bet the, the noir buffs in the audience who'd gone along to maybe pick at the film and talk about what it had got wrong came away 
really impressed and amazed, not only at the look of the film and not only at the way they'd actually matched the clips together, but as as we've said, at the fact that it actually works as a serious noir and that it pays homage to 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 the the, the classic noir as well. In in uh, again, this word again, respect. It does it in a very respectful way. Yeah, it's not a spoof. In, in, in the traditional sense, I mean, you think like airplane and things like that. It's not poking fun at these movies at all. No. It's using these movies as, as, a, as a delivery system for some gags like in the same type of story, but still treating it with the same same reverence that you would treat any other film like that, shooting it in the same way. It's lit perfectly, beautifully lit, this movie, in that style of a 1940s film noir, you know. I mean, I'm interested to see how the uh, what the re- the reaction was to it because I'm when I watched it, I watched it when I was about eighteen, nineteen for the first time, and I didn't I knew a bit about film noir, but I didn't know that much about film noir. So I probably got the Walter Neff references and the the double indemnity stuff, but a lot of the other stuff I wouldn't have have seen at that time. But yeah. I still enjoyed it. And still I, I don't I don't think you necessarily need no to. no you don't. But obviously now I watched it again recently and. It, it, it's like I've seen pretty much all the films now yeah. that they're referencing, and it's like, okay, yeah, this is great. You know, so it is. It's it's a joy as a sort of historical piece, then, isn't it? Mm. And, and and a sort of it's 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 like a sort of uh, a, a bluffer's guide to film noir. It works in that sense, you know. Mm. It really is. And uh, and I, I I think I think it's a film that's got these different levels and works for different audiences, and. There's no audience at, at any level that is going to come away disappointed. I really don't think that. I think it's one of those movies that where it's not, it, it almost feels like if it was had a, a different stroke of luck, it's one of those movies that people would quote in like, you know, as a comedy, yeah. like with yeah. Nail and I or something like that, where you, yeah. people generally throw out the quotes, uh, you know, you need a cup of my Java, you know, things like that. You know, you just think they, they are lines that are set up for it to be a cult classic. It's not quite achieved that over the years, but I don't know whether that's just due to, I don't know, Steve Martin having more, way more successful movies, I guess, going forward. I, I, I think so. This is, I think this is still seen as being a little bit of a novelty, and I think it's a lot more than that. I, I, I think that whole last 20 minutes of the film, which could have absolutely petered out, kickstarts it again and, and brings it to a great climax because you've got Rennie Santoni coming on and, and taking over the film. You know, you've got um, clips from, um, very heavy use of clips from a lesser film noir and one that's not considered as one of the greats, The Bride from 1949. And because they're using The Bride rather than using something like, you know, a, an icon like the Maltese Falcon or something, I think they get away with more. They're able to use more footage, which audiences might might be less familiar with great appearances by Vincent Price and Charles Lawton in there again brilliantly edited in and then of course it all ends up with um, Martin interacting alongside Carl Reiner Carl Reiner who comes on and just nails it and steals the show (laughs) yeah the comedy bit where obviously you get in these movies where the villain explains his his plan (laughs) and steve martin starts to explain the plan he said no it's the the detective who explains the plan no it's the villain they they end up (laughs) racing each other to try and get the fun out it's just it's just i I can literally see them writing that down and going that is genius that is absolutely genius and and knowing damn well that they could play it and uh, I, i i bet steve was in comedy heaven working along he'd made a, he'd made a film with Carl Reiner he'd done the jerk with him but to actually get the chance to act alongside an idol you know no matter how big you are no matter how many times you've played stadiums and played to 20,000 people to get the chance to work on set and spar with one of your comedy idols that's that's why you're in the business man you know that's uh, that's what it's all about I bet Martin loved that yeah, absolutely. Well, let's let's move on to, to the next movie. Now, over these podcast hour that we've been doing, we I, I think we've done pretty good on um, dealing with pronunciations of, <laughs> of, of characters' names, of actors from other other countries that we're not that familiar with. Uh, I think we've done a good job. Today might challenge us. Um, we're here with a man with two brains, with Steve Martin playing Doctor Perfner. <laughs> And alongside the uncredited Sissy Spacek as Anne, all together now, Melmahead. 
Yeah, do we just call them Mr. H and Miss U, I think? Well, let's, yeah, let's just yeah, say yeah. Steve, Steve and Sissy. Um, yeah, Steve yeah I think so. Yeah, man with two brains then. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, uh, again, back to, much more back to the sort of like, okay, let's let's do another Steve Martin vehicle where we got wacky, crazy guy, uh, ridiculously outrageous, silly plots about a man, a talking brain, and him falling in love with a talking brain. Effectively, that's it's a love it's a love story, Daryl. It's a very yeah, sweet yeah, love yeah. story about a man meets brain and falls in love with it, and then has to find a body to put her in. Intermingle that with a, a gold digging villainess played by uh, Kathleen Turner. To, it was yeah. such delight playing in this, in this role. Um, you get a, you get a piece of genius, really. Yeah, she's so good. And and then throw in as well. Um, in a film like this, you've got to have a vintage classic mad scientist. Again, it's going back to the forties, I guess. And we get our own great. Mr. David Warner, as he's got one of the names that's easier to pronounce in the film, Dr. Necessiter. <laughs> Necessiter, as in he is necessity to the plot. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he, he's, I mean, let's, let's start with him, actually, because there's a temptation with movies like this when you get brought on as a supporting character is to go over the top, be, do the Jim Carrey in Batman Forever, go over the top with your, <laughs> with your chewing of the scenery. And he's, we want you to play a mad scientist. Okay, great. That's, that's literally a license to go crazy. And he doesn't, he doesn't, he go, he, he underplays it. He undercuts it. And it, it, and it works brilliantly alongside um, Steve Martin in this. But Warner had been playing this type of part in films just prior to Man with Two Brains. He'd done stuff like Tron, where he he played the the, the sort of evil villain in that, and uh, one or two other movies around that time where he'd he'd almost become typecast in in this part as the big spooky or big scary villain, you know. And uh, I I, th- I think it was just another day's work for him, you know. And he could come on, he could do it in his sleep, but he could give a great performance in his sleep, and he'd take it all. Seriously, again, it's back to this thing of he—he he doesn't play the character as a comic character. No, I think it's another example there of getting it just right and getting laughs out of the straightness of the character. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, he plays it with a yeah, as I say, like a like a, a down downplayed character. I mean, he, he, the, the particular bit where he comes back rushing in with a brain, he needs to get it into another body. And uh, David Warner comes out, he's slightly drunk, he's holding a bottle, and he's just like, <laughs> "Yeah, we can do it." So yeah, it's no problem. <laughs> it's just like just very relaxed about. It. Yeah, we're gonna put yeah. we're gonna put your brain in that body, and we're gonna yeah. put it in the in the, in the ape, but you know. It's just, it's just, yeah, it's a great. Yeah, we we didn't mention the gorilla, did we? So no, there's a, there's, yeah, a, there's a great great gorilla. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's like gorilla movies. This is a great gorilla movie uh, as well. So uh, yeah, and again, there were a few of those around at the time. So uh, so it's hitting it's hitting all those early eighties faces, I think. <laughs> but yeah, Kathleen Turner, we've got to talk about her her interaction with Steve is just to die for. They're they're what a what a couple. Well, this is the one where I think, I mean, as much as I, we've talked about Bernadette Peters and Rachel Ward, this is the one where I feel like, okay, now we're getting somewhere with the supporting, with, he's got someone he's playing up against in this movie rather than alongside. Yeah, it's, it's a rival. But the, the chemistry on screen between these two, I think arguably is the, is, is the first one that gets it right for Steve. Yeah, yeah. And well, we, we were in the in the Kathleen dedicated podcast, we were talking about her relationship on screen with Michael Douglas. And I think a big part of that comes out of the fact that there's competition there. I think they, they, they love each other. They have a great time working together. But I think there's also a sense they're trying to outvie each other on screen. And you get that here as well. You know, she's, she's doing a professional job and she's, she knows that Steve's the star and she knows that he's got to have his sort of shtick that he can do, you know. But she is going to do her damnedest to get your attention whenever she's on screen. And I think that conflict... Not in a nasty way, in a in a very professional, very um, creative way. Yeah, yeah. Is 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 one that really helps the film, and I think it boosts both of the performances. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely, and um, yeah, and she, she's just great and so horrible, <laughs> so yeah, wonderfully yeah. horrible. Yeah, ruthless, cruel, ruthless. bitchy, everything yeah. you can think of. Yeah, yeah. And, and 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 we love her for it. 
and, and with, just with a twinkle, <laughs> a twinkle in her eye as she's doing it as well. It's just like, yeah, yeah. you can't teach that. You can't teach that. <laughs> yeah. There's a, the, the whole running gag where where she's sort of having affairs with the pool guy, and any 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 sort of young man she sort of happens across, you know, and every time there's a little glance backwards over their shoulder into the camera directly at us. I know what I'm doing. You guys watching know what I'm doing. This guy in my arms knows what I'm doing. Steve Martin doesn't know. And we know he doesn't know. But it's also the Bugs Bunny thing, like, ain't I a stinker? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> looking into the exactly. camera. Yeah, yeah. It is. It's cl- classic uh, comic book uh, villainess, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but brilliantly with it, you know. And, and Steve Martin not playing a sap as such. Uh, hey, that's 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 the tricky line in tragedy. Usually, you get these ones where you get these manipulative women who are marrying the characters for their money and then killing them off for for the will. And but he's not an idiot, you know. But but he gets duped. If you think about it, though, I mean, by by the end of the film, not only have we seen him as a um, a psychotic killer or an, a, a, someone who's attempting to be a psychotic killer. And there, there seems to be a little gag reference in there where he's he's almost at times imitating uh, Boris Karloff in a movie called Grip of the Strangler. Very similar sort of look to his character in those scenes. But if you think about it, he's scheming just as much as Kathleen Turner is. He's He's trying to have an affair behind her back but with a disembodied brain in a jar. So because because it's with a disembodied brain in a jar and you've got that comic uh, uh, sort of veneer to that, we, we're on his side, you know, but, uh, but if you really, really analyse it deep down, his character's as horrible as Kathleen's is. Yeah, possibly. In, I, mean, I think, sense, I think yeah, Kathleen's yeah. pretty much out there, which helps, which pretty well, she, helps, yeah. you know. Well, she, kill, is, she kills yeah. a dog in the first five minutes, Daryl, you know. Yeah, yeah. The, her, her, her husband dies, the dog dies, you know, she's responsible for both deaths. We know she's the bad guy within the first five minutes. By contrast, Steve Martin saves somebody in a brain surgery. You know, so yeah, yeah. well, let's let's say they're they're playing the same game, but she she's in the Premier League and he's in he's in the you know non-league football or whatever. So, uh, but uh, we do root for Steve in this, I think, and and it's it's it's, it's lovely that he always gets happy endings in these films, you know, and they're they're good feel-good movies. They're all pretty short. They're all under ninety minutes. They get in and out. They do their job. And um, and we all go away with a, a, a smile on our face and feeling good about the main character at the end, and that's that's what it's all about. But uh, the specifics of the comedy of Man with Two Brains, I, I think, are, are wonderful. I mean, we, we we don't want to start quoting lines, but if if we just say the azaleas on the porch sequence, the into the mud scum queen bit, you know, so so much else, you know, that great human pinball thing that Steve does uh, in well, the the whole thing as well about the, the film set in the modern day but if you're doing a mad scientist movie david warner's got to be doing his experiments in in an old gothic castle not not a modern condo no no that's been redone <laughs> what we do is we, we get both here and this gives us a chance to throw in the name of one of cine lit's favorites polly platt is there yet again and she's responsible for the look of this film and man does she do a great job yeah, I mean, I literally was watching it yesterday and I, I, the credits started to roll and I saw her name and I'm like, my God, I realised Polly Platt was involved in this. Polly Platt, unsung, unsung hero of cinema. And I think we should definitely, definitely we, try we and do a podcast on her in, in yeah. the future, definitely. And what a job she does here. Yeah, no, it's great. It's absolutely great. <laughs> Especially with the condo, which is... which is. Well, you, you, you get the opportunity to, to do mansions, uh, brain surgery sets, you get um, mad scientists, brain in jars, you know, you get... Um, Hotel lobbies with elevators that stick between floors is yeah. a good thing here as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and uh, a phantom killer stalking yeah. the streets of, of Europe, uh, killing off yeah, people. We're, we're misled into thinking it might be Steve Martin at one point, but we'll not spoil the surprise. So, <laughs> 40 years on, you know. But <laughs> so, so it's like the third film in this run, and it feels like the pieces are really coming together for Steve in, in this one. It's definitely his comedy style movie, you know, the crazy, wacky comedy in it. But equally, you've got a very notable leading female performance in this role as well. 
and a fairly complete movie. And it's, it's one of those ones where this one and in more, I guess, more well, accurately, at all of me, this, the next one, you get that high concept comedy idea that the 80s loved so much, you know, um, the, the the elevator pitch style thing, you know. It's it's called The Man With Two Brains. He's got a horrible woman who wants to kill him and he falls in love with the brain in a jar. Boom. Yeah, here's, Give me the check. Here's, here's $20 million, yeah. Whereas the other two seem more of a, of a harder sell. Yeah. Whereas this one feels like, okay, this is a relatively easy sell to get the money for. Kathleen Turner, very hot on um, coming off of um, Body Heat. Steve Martin, relatively established star, pairing up with Carl Reiner again. Um, it feels like, okay, yeah, this is an easier sell. Yeah, it's in, it's in vogue as well. It's got science fiction, it's got broad comedy, and it's got a little bit of horror in it. So it's it's touching all of those early eighties bases, you know. I mean, this is this is in the era of VHS as well. Um, so it it you know is this going to sell to uh, rental customers on video, you know? And uh, and boy, it did, you know. Yeah. Cool. Okay, let's move, let's move on to all of me now. All of me is one of those movies that I saw on the back of all watching all these films and felt it was the weakest of the three when I was 18. Watching them back now, I see how wrong I was, <laughs> how, great, how great the film is. And yeah, I think it's just a maturity thing. I think it's much yeah. more of a mature film. I would have been 22 at the time I saw this on on video release. It barely got a cinema release in this country. I think I did see it in the cinema on, on a late show somewhere. But yeah, I'd seen it on video first. I was 22 and I picked it as my, my favourite film of the year that year. He was obviously ahead of the game on me, Daryl. Yeah, yeah. As I say, I was already even at, even at that stage. I was a huge fan of nineteen thirties comedy, and I thought I'll I'll never see anything funnier than than the great W. C. Fields movies or the great Laurel and Hardy films. This came damn close for me. I I, I think this is the funniest film that I've ever seen outside of of that classic period, and still to this day, it it, it holds up. I I just love all of me. A great vehicle for Martin. It's not written by him this time. It's written by uh, Phil Alden Robinson, who is known for things like uh, Field of Dreams and so on, and went on from this to work on Fletch, I think, as well. I think he did uncredited work on the script for Fletch, which I know is uh, one of your favourites. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's got a good, good script that's sort of written for Steve rather than with him this time. Based on an unpublished novel, isn't it? Yes, yeah, uh, called Me Too, I think it's called, yeah. We talked about a high concept idea and it's, it, it, it gets about it in a, in a fairly roundabout fashion, but ultimately it's the soul of Lily Tomlin, a spoilt heiress who's never really lived because she's been sick all her life. She finally dies. Her soul is captured by a... Hindu mystic. Hindu mystic, yeah, a yogi sort of character. And, and is, put in, is supposed to be put into the body of a new, younger woman who is willing to sacrifice her, her, her body for, for, for this, this woman. But, and here's where the twist comes, uh, her soul goes into Steve Martin's lawyer, jazz musician body. And they end up sharing the same body uh, with Lily Tomlin controlling the left side and Steve Martin controlling the right side. And the comedy hilarity ensues. Right. Where do we start? Where do we start? I think it's one of those ones where it's like, I think this is, this is the most complete movie of the run, of Carl Reiner's run. It's, it's, it's a coherent plot. It's not a traditional rom-com, but the beats it hit in the film are traditional rom-com beats they hate each other they begrudgingly have to team up and do stuff together they have to help each other out growing respect and ultimately they fall in love so it it, it hits all those beats it just hits the beats in one body (laughs) ultimately Um, (laughs) what what a gimmick that is and how great is it that it becomes much much more than a gimmick because of that amazing central performance by Mr. Martin. Well, Steve Martin's obviously he's playing two, having two people controlling the body, right? So you, as a, as a, as you're watching, right, you you shouldn't realise that it's just Steve Martin being silly and being daft and wacky and, and, and miscontrolling his body and looking very silly. 
But very, very quickly, you forget that Steve's acting and you realise, oh, this is where Lily Tomlin's controlling the body, as if as if that's actually happening as you're watching. Yeah, yeah. You don't completely put it he's, out. He's that convincing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple of scenes there that I think we need to talk about. But one, one I'll mention in, in passing before we do is there's one scene where he's just lying asleep on a couch and it's a sort of nothing filler bit of a scene. Adam's miming it now <laughs> for, for the for the benefit of you you listeners and lily tomlin's half of the body wakes up and tries to wake him up by patting him on the cheek with with her hand and it's real (laughs) martin plays it so well you as you've just said you buy that it is lily tomlin that's controlling this side of his body so you've got him absolutely comatose stretched out on this couch with this hand operating like like not only like a real hand but like a real woman's hand and with with that with just the lightness of touch and oh it's how how martin does this one one thing i'll say before we go on to sort of analyze his performance in more detail he didn't get an oscar nomination we're always banging on about it didn't even get a sniff of the oscars didn't need it one best actor at the new york critics circle so all of your influential New York critics writing for all the great New York papers and magazines, they, they know their stuff, you know, we're better than the Oscars, you know, we're going to disregard what the Oscars do and we're, we're going to go off on our own tangent. If, if there's a better acting performance than that in the 80s, I, I don't know, maybe Jeremy Irons in Dead Ringers possibly, but which, which is not a dissimilar sort of part, you know, mm. um, having to play two characters, but... Honestly, Steve Martin, to do what he does in what is ostensibly a sort of dumb, silly comedy is is remarkable. He was also nominated for the Best Golden Globe uh, for, yeah. for comedy performance, com- comedy film, as was Lily Tomlin for Best Actress. And Lily Tomlin won for Best Actress. And now part of me thinks that, yes, she, she's very good in this movie, but how much of Steve's performance were the voters voting for when they voted for her because he's controlling you know he's doing the things that she's supposed to be controlling like we just said and a lot of it is that a lot of it is steve's performance of lily tomlin doing that exactly well we'll we'll go on to talk about that then yeah one very good directorial decision is to use lily tomlin's face in mirrors and have steve talking direct to her i think that really helps the illusion quite a lot the fact that you know she's there in some kind of semi-physical form you know i think that really helps to carry the illusion not to denigrate from martin's playing of it though which is sensational so when when he's first possessed then and and He's first having to react to the fact that he's got this soul, not possessing his entire body. Again, this is the genius of Robinson's script. He's possessed on the right side of his body. That's a great concept. You know, can can you think of any other actor that could have played that part? I, I don't think even Chaplin could have done that. You know, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a tricky one. I don't know. I guess, I guess she's talking about the classic sort of like would like a Rowan Atkinson as Mr Bean style thing. Yeah. Yeah, maybe you know a Jim Carrey in his prime, possibly you know, but yeah, no, I don't think as effectively as Steve. I I don't think anyone could have come close to this. I I, I think it's absolutely unique, and um, not only in in film but in Martin's career. I don't think he's ever done anything like it before or since. But what what a performance! I mean, that when when he first realizes, there's the initial reaction to the fact that he realizes that Lily is inside half of his body and then you get the physical stuff starts when he starts trying to walk and his his right hand goes one way and his left goes the other and they're acting completely independently and one's acting in a very feminine way and then the the, the walk you know you've, you've got dainty steps on one side you've got this <laughs> it's 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 not even it's not even male steps on the other it's just this great galumping mm. along it's like frankenstein walking isn't it <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> wonderful yeah it couldn't be better and and the key thing is again as we've been saying about all of these films is it's all about being convincing you know it's about do you believe this and i think that's one key thing about these four steve martin films is they've all got outrageous concepts but you believe in every single one of them and this is the biggest stretch for an audience how are you going to sell this concept to an audience and 
you need the greatest performance of the 1980s and we get it. Yeah, yeah. That courtroom scene. No, the courtroom scene's fantastic, but you, mainly because it starts off as, as a Lily Tomlin scene. Lily Tomlin, he, he's just completely Lily Tomlin. But the good, a good five, ten minutes of it, and then boom. Again, it's not Lily Tomlin, is it? You know, we're, we're sort of using that as shorthand. What, what you're realistically seeing is the actor Steve Martin playing the character of Lily Tomlin on screen. She's not there at all, you know, but you, you buy that she is. You buy that she is. That's, that's the first essential part of the performance. The second part of the performance is Steve's character, as we've just alluded to, is asleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's, he's also in court, um, working as a lawyer in court, a defence lawyer. The man on trial is the boss of the law firm. <laughs> Steve's got to win this case in order to get his partnership. And he's asleep and Lily Tomlin has got to act for him. So you've got Steve Martin playing Lily Tomlin, who then has to play a version of Steve Martin. And... Man, he, he convinces. Yeah, he, he's he's it's a sort of force. You know at every step of the way precisely what you're watching and you believe it. Yeah. What he basically does, what, what the actor Steve Martin is doing is instead of talking in his own character's voice, he's putting on this ludicrous, uber-masculine <laughs> voice. <laughs> as, as his idea, the, you know, or Phil Alden Robinson, Robinson or Steve or Carl Reiner's idea of how a woman talks like a man, and yet it's coming out of Steve Martin's mouth. Oh, it's just fabulous. No, it, it, it's it's a great sequence, and again, you kind of it's almost it's almost tricky because you you do forget that it is it is one person playing the role. Yeah. And I think that, in some way, diminishes your diminishes your respect for the scene because you're just following it. But the fact that you're following it in such like like buying it so is is, is a testament to the performance. In making it ultra believable, they they sort of shoot themselves in the foot almost, don't they? Yeah, yeah. It's not flashy in that respect where you think, oh, and here's where he's playing the female bit, and here's where he's playing the male bit. Yeah. It's essential to the plot, and, and it's played as though it's essential to the plot. And yet, if, if, if you, as an exercise, take that scene as an excerpt and watch it and watch it and watch it and analyse it, you'll, you'll see it's, it's what we're saying. It's the best acting performance of the 1980s. And what, what adds to that as well is, that, is the device that when, they first, when she first inhabits the body, Steve's like talking out loud at her. What are you doing in my body? Yeah. Well, yeah. And then, then halfway through, I think it's halfway through that scene, she goes, you know, you don't have to shout. You can just think, I can hear you. And then that, then for the next scenes, that just adds yeah. to the comedy value because you've got him speaking out loud, him in, internally speaking, her internally speaking, and her using his voice. It's like four different like layers of dialogue there. Yeah, so Steve is playing Lily as though Lily is imitating the most irritating side of what she's seen from from the lawyer character it she's not portraying him in a, in a nice way in fact that we even get that as the scene plays out because she starts in in instead of instead of actually defending the uh, the the boss of the law firm she she starts accusing him of things and uh, um, she revert it, it well this again is Steve, we, we're using the word she this is all steve martin playing it you know and uh, but the female half of his personality reverts back to doing what Lily Tomlin's character would do and accusing the legal boss of the things that he's actually done rather than sort of lying to defend him. Oh, it, it works on, as you say, on about four or five levels. I, I can't imagine what, what the process was of writing that from the scriptwriter's point of view, how Steve Martin whether he was involved in, in sort of helping to script that scene or what, whether he knew what his limitations and what his skills were, or if that was just delivered to him as a, a plain script and he took one look at that and thought, I can do this, you know, or thought, how, how on earth am I going to approach this? But he, he got there, he absolutely nailed it. And, um, oh, it, it's sensational. I mean, it's, what, it, it's one of those things that we've been talking about, obviously, the physical demands of the role and the physical comedy all the way through during what we were talking about. 
but it doesn't shirk on the sort of like the dialogue as well. I mean, there's, I mean, one line stood out for me. It's like she, he's, he's accusing before she passes away, and he's, he's a lawyer. He gets into an argument with um, Edwina, Lily Tomlin's character, and uh, he, he storms out, shouting, "You suck all the fun out of being a lawyer!" <laughs> Slams the door and leaves. <laughs> and it's just lo- lovely one-liners like that all the way through this movie as well. You know, and um, Steve, yeah, yeah. Steve thought it was his. He looked at this movie as a different part of his career. We're we're lumping it yeah. in as the end of these three movies, but I think he sees it as the what you say yeah. says my mature film career started with all of me and then and ends with LA Story. So yeah, yeah, I can see that it 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 does fit in because it's directed by Carl Reiner and because it's got certain elements in common with the three other films, it fits in as part of this group. But it is a transitional film, and you can you can actually see the birth of what Britain came to know as Steve Martin in those later films. You know, when we finally caught on to him. Uh, for all the craziness and the kookiness this plot has, it, it's got a beginning, a middle, and end. You know, it's it's, it's yeah. a traditional three act structure Hollywood style comedy. You know, yeah. and and it, it rolls out like that way. And yeah, it, so I can see why he thinks of it as as the next step in his career it led on to things like. Um, parenthood and planes, trains, and automobiles, and, and some of the bigger successes of the late eighties for him. I think that's that's the really great thing about all of me uh, for me, Adam, is that it's got feet in both of those camps. It is a transitional film, but it's got the best elements of both worlds. For me, it's the best of the Carl Reiner films, and it works as a Carl Reiner Steve Martin film. But it's also a vision of the future. It's a vision vision of how his career is going to go and the sort of roles that he's going to play in the future. Yeah, you can you can see Roxanne in this, can't you? You know, yeah, definitely. The, the, the definitely. quirky sort of like gimmick of, of big big yeah. nose in Roxanne and the romantic yeah. love story. You know that plays out yeah, yeah. inside it. So. Yeah, and Ro- Roxanne's great, but I think for people that had seen all of me, and a lot of Roxanne's audience hadn't, that's, that's the point I keep making. Roxanne seemed to be the film where he got discovered over here. And um, people that had seen all of me loved, loved Roxanne, but you did sort of think, well, you know, we know we know they're doing the Serrano thing, so he's got the big nose and it's it's particularly large because it's a comedy, you know, um, and they're really playing on that. But I've just come off seeing all of me, which had him playing a half man, half woman, acting as himself, pretending to be Lily Tomlin, all of these layers. And I'm watching Roxanne and thinking, well, this is great. I'm enjoying it. But it ain't all of me. You know, it's not quite got that complexity to it in terms of the comedy, even though it's more complex in other areas. Yeah, I think they're two interesting films there, and I think they're two they're, they're Steve's two best films of the eighties. It's so interesting talking from a British perspective and talking as someone who was actually there at the time watching these films as they came out. That there, there's this dividing line between them. There's a whole audience that didn't know that the Carl Reiner films existed. Yeah, thinking about it, my first react, my first interaction with Steve Martin was probably at the Three Amigos. Uh, which yeah. is around 86 or something like that. So um, I don't know when Roxanne was 87, all right? Yeah, and all, all of these films are all within about, within about 18 months. He did uh, Planes, Trains and Automobiles, Three Amigos, uh, Roxanne, and then on to stuff like LA Story later on. So it's a real sort of condensed career. You know, the, the, the big hits... Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, as we've said, yeah. They're all they're all sort of in this little knot all together. Bang, bang, bang. You can see why he caught on over here, because there was a new film coming out every six months, yeah. you know. But uh, but I, I just wish that that had happened a couple of years earlier. And I think these films would be more revered than they are. I think they're popular. People have backtracked into them and like them a lot, you know. But... I don't think they've got quite the reverence of some of the later films, and I, I think I think these four are better. Yeah, no, I think not equally. It's one of those things. I think I don't think they're available as easily as some of his no. later ones. You know, like you, you see planes, trains, and automobiles pop up on streaming platforms all the time, but you never see the jerk, uh, all of me, Demi and Demi Plaid, and Mamma's Brains on Netflix or someone like that. You know, you, none of these films are on like subscription services at the moment. You can buy them, you can rent them from from Amazon Prime or VOD, wherever, but they're not available as as part of your subscriptions. So, 
why would you why would you take a chance i guess i guess in this world now why would you well that's choose a film that's not that's why we're here exactly. to tell you take, take, take a chance, that chance. Yeah, take a chance <laughs> yeah yeah cool take a chance on steve <laughs> <laughs> we've not really talked about Kyle Reiner as much as, as, as I thought we were going to do but I think the the, th- the things that we talked about in the first two films that he brings to the table just I think continued on and I think particularly in all of me the sort of like yeah. making it feel more like a movie definitely came to the fore yeah. in this one didn't it I'll just mention there to close the, the Reiner story in that he, he, he made a really really good film called Summer School in the mid John Candy which I like a lot one, one, I will throw in one other thing. If you, if you, if you, if you want to check out more of Steve Martin and Carl Reiner, particularly Carl Reiner, um, on uh, comedians getting coffee in cars, the Jerry Seinfeld Netflix series, they're both interviewed on that, and the Carl Reiner one is possibly one of my favourite bits of TV from the last 10 years. They, it's got Carl, Carl, the, the gimmick of the show is Jerry Seinfeld turns up in a really expensive car that he says, he, he claims, he's tailor-picked the car to meet, to fit the guest. I'm not quite sure I agree with that, but he, he rocks up in a really like expensive car or a retro car and takes them out for coffee. And they have a chat in the coffee shop and he takes them back. That's, that's the gimmick of the show. Very simple. But Carl Reiner being in his like 90s, late 90s, um, obviously wasn't in the mood for jetting around. So he went to Carl's house. He rocks up. Mel Brooks is there because Mel Brooks goes over for his tea every night and watches Jeopardy. And they they did they, they sat and interview Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks is chipping in and it just becomes a wonderful snapshot of a friendship between Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner. So yeah, heartily recommend that one. And Steve's also interviewed on that podcast on that on that series as well. Yeah, so check those out if you haven't seen them before. Okay, that wraps us up with uh, Steve Martin, Carl Ryan. I had a lot of fun watching these four movies over the last week, and uh, I'm sure we're back in a couple weeks' time with another great subject matter. Again, I want to thank Quad and the BFI for helping support these podcasts, and I will see we we will see you again in a couple weeks' time.